Now you all did read in the public prints how Pakenham attempted to make our Hickory Jackson wins, but soon his scheme repented. For Jackson, he was wide awake. He was not scared of trifles. Full well he knew what aim we take with our Kentucky rifles. Oh, Kentucky, the hunt is of Kentucky. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 7, Andrew Jackson. Have you ever seen the movie Patton? It opens with General Patton standing in front of a giant American flag, addressing the troops before the invasion of Normandy during World War II, D-Day. And there's a point early in his speech, practically at the beginning, where he says, Americans love a winner. And that right there might be the truest line you will ever hear about Americans in any movie, and it sure explains a heck of a lot about Andrew Jackson's political rise and enduring popularity in the American imagination. Because, although General Jackson may have known how to win a battle or two, he was otherwise a pretty terrible human being. How terrible? Well, He's going to kill quite a few innocent people in duels or as a military leader. He's going to decimate the Native American population through a forced migration known as the Trail of Tears, which is going to kill a lot more innocent people. And his economic policies are going to cause one of the most severe economic depressions in American history, which, you know, probably killed a few more innocent people. But hey! He did beat the British at New Orleans, so let's keep him on the $20 bill. Let's begin. Andrew Jackson is someone who any armchair psychologist would say was hugely impacted by his childhood. Jackson was born on March 15, 1767, on the border between North and South Carolina. He was born just a few months after the death of his father, who had died working the family farm. That left him and his two older brothers in the care of their mother. Even as a child, Jackson had a rebellious streak. So when the Revolutionary War broke out, what do you think 13-year-old Jackson did? He joined the rebellion! Unfortunately, it would not turn out well for anyone in his family. First, Jackson's older brother died in the Battle of Stono Ferry which sucks. But then Jackson and his middle brother were captured by the British. They'd been serving as letter couriers for the Revolutionary Armies, and the British didn't like letter couriers, so it threw the children in a prisoner of war camp, where they both caught smallpox and soon were on the verge of death. Jackson's mother learned where they were and got them freed in a prisoner exchange, but Jackson's middle brother still died shortly after returning home. So that's both siblings killed by the war. But it gets worse. Jackson's mother then volunteered to nurse rebel soldiers held in a British prison ship in Charleston. Maybe she hoped to prevent other mothers from losing their sons as she had. Instead, she made young Jackson an orphan. She quickly caught cholera while working on the ship and died. And the thing is, The war ended less than a year later. It's like they almost made it. So, to recap, Jackson is only 14 years old, and he's already been a rebel, a prisoner of war, and he's lost both parents and both siblings, most of them in a war against the British. Needless to say, that's going to have a huge impact on his life. Despite, or perhaps because of these tragedies, Jackson grew into a man who could be summed up by the phrase, no half measures. He moved to the part of the frontier that would soon become Tennessee, and he became the rowdiest, fightiest, shootiest man there was. When other men set out to find a wife, he set out to find another man's wife. Seriously. In Tennessee, Jackson met a woman named Rachel, whose husband soon left her, but didn't divorce her. And so Jackson courted Rachel, moved in, and married her, all while she was still married to her ex, though she might have thought she was divorced. 
and the guy eventually did send divorce papers, and then Jackson might have remarried Rachel, it's a little fuzzy. <laughs> but this became the dirty frontier secret that everyone knew, and everyone talked. And because Andrew Jackson is the Yosemite Sam of presidents, anytime he heard someone talking about this scandal, he'd challenge them to a duel and try to shoot them dead. Jackson engaged in several duels as a young man, usually over Rachel, but sometimes because someone publicly embarrassed him. They didn't all reach the point of violence, but he did get shot twice and he killed a man. Like I said, no half measures. So, you might be starting to get a sense of who Jackson is, which is good. <laughs> He's not going to change. And you know those scandalous rumors about him and Rachel hooking up while Rachel was still married? Well, that's going to come up again later. Stay tuned. So, Jackson also started to accumulate a number of slaves around this time. As with most things in life, he could be decent, but he could also be terrible. When one slave ran away in 1804, he posted a $50 bounty and offered an extra $10 for every hundred lashes the slave catcher inflicted on his returned slave. Jackson might have owned more slaves than every other president except Jefferson and Washington. So, not great on that front. So, what was young Jackson doing for a career? I mean, buying all those slaves, that cost money. Well, he never really got a formal education, but living on the frontier, you didn't really need one. You could kind of just show up to most jobs and try to BS your way through them. Jackson tried his hand at teaching lawyering, debt collecting, and he became one of Tennessee's first congressmen and senators. It sounds pretty good, but he's not actually very good at any of this, except the debt collecting. Years later, Thomas Jefferson, who met Jackson the senator, would remember Jackson as someone so consumed by rage that he was incapable of making a cohesive argument. Jackson would resign from the Senate before his term was up. The career where Jackson found his calling was fighting. In 1802, Jackson got elected Major General of the Tennessee Militia, the career that would make him famous. In particular, he'd be known for three things, being an Indian fighter, being the hero of New Orleans, and conquering Spanish Florida. But before we get to those things, I want to tell you about the time he got caught up in a little bit of treason against the United States. You didn't see that one coming, did you? In 1806, Jackson played host to a rather infamous man at his home, the Hermitage. The man was none other than former Vice President Aaron Burr, the man who had killed former Treasurer Secretary and Federalist leader Alexander Hamilton in a duel just two years earlier. And if all you know of Burr is what you saw in the musical Hamilton, you might think he spent the rest of his life regretting that, but, well, he didn't. Burr was still vice president when he killed Hamilton, and he literally showed up at the Senate a short time later, took his seat as if nothing had happened, and everyone's just kind of staring at him like, what are you doing here? And he's just all kind of like, so how was your Tuesday? Anyway, he wasn't cowed at all, but in 1804, he was voted out of office. And that might be when Aaron Burr came up with a crazy little plan to steal the American South and set up a new country. Really. Let's call it Burtopia. And he kind of roped Jackson into it. So Burr visits Jackson, down in Jackson's home, the Hermitage, and Jackson treats him like an honored guest. Because Jackson was a Jeffersonian Republican, and this is true, a lot of Jeffersonian Republicans kind of thought it was awesome that Burr had killed Hamilton, especially Shooty McGee, Andrew Jackson. And Burr tells Jackson that he's there on secret orders from President Jefferson, to gather an army and seize New Orleans from the Spanish. And Jackson says, great, let me help you build that army. I'm happy to help. At least, that's according to Jackson. He never asked to see these secret orders. He never tried to verify them. 
he just claims he kind of took Burr at his word and started gathering soldiers, which all sounds super suspicious to me, especially given what comes next. So, back in D.C., President Jefferson soon learns that former Vice President Burr is trying to build an army and, guess what, there are no secret orders. And what the hell is Burr up to? So Jefferson orders the local militia general, Andrew Jackson, to break the whole thing up. Jackson flips on Burr, sensing which way the wind's going. Burr flees, and we never get to see the nation of Burrtopia. But it did soon become clear to everyone in Washington, D.C. that Jackson had originally been helping Burr out. And it did make them wonder, how trustworthy can this guy be? Okay, so this gets us back to those three things General Jackson is going to become famous for. Indian fighter, hero of New Orleans, and conqueror of Spanish Florida. Let's start with Jackson the Indian fighter. So when the War of 1812 breaks out, Jackson thinks he's going to go fight the British. He even recruits like 2,000 soldiers to go march off to Canada with him. But nobody in Washington trusts him after that whole Burr thing. Jackson could be the next Benedict Arnold for all they know. So they make him go fight Native Americans first. Part of the British strategy of the War of 1812 was to encourage Native American tribes to rise up against the American colonists. Join us, the British said, and we'll give you guns, supplies, and your land back after we've kicked those Yankees east of the Appalachians. Which, it does sound like a pretty sweet deal. But not every tribe took it. Some of the tribes were so divided, they actually split over it. This was the case of the Creek tribe, one of the largest tribes in the American South. When a Creek faction called the Red Sticks started attacking white settlements, Jackson was told to rally an army of militia and pro-American Creek Indians and to wage war on the Red Sticks with them which Jackson did. And Jackson wasn't a strategic genius or anything, but he outnumbered the Red Sticks significantly, and he was not a dummy. But then Jackson decided he hadn't done anything terrible in a while, so having killed off or driven off all the Red Sticks, he turned to his Creek allies, allies who had just fought a civil war against their brothers alongside him, and he told them that they had to give the United States a huge chunk of their land, approximately three-fifths of modern Alabama and one-fifth of Georgia, or he would kill them all, too. Which, well, I mean, they kind of had to say yes at that point. They just fought a civil war, lost most of their soldiers. But don't worry, because the U.S. did give their land back to them after the War of 1812, which would last until Jackson became president and then he's totally going to take it back away again. But yeah, we'll get to the Trail of Tears in good time. Okay, so by 1814, Jackson had defeated the Red Sticks and earned some major street cred in Washington for being just about the only general in the War of 1812 who wasn't getting his butt kicked. So new Secretary of War, James Monroe, ordered Jackson to New Orleans to defend against an expected British invasion. It's time for the Battle of New Orleans. Okay, so how did Jackson win? He's going to be outnumbered like two to one. In short, he picked a good battlefield, and then he got pretty lucky. Jackson picked a spot where he had the river on one side and an impassable marsh on the other, so the British would have to come straight at him. He also picked a spot with an old irrigation canal about four feet deep and ten feet wide, running from the river to the marsh. He ordered his men to build a dirt wall on his side of the canal so he could fire from behind it, which made for a pretty good defensive position. Any British attack would have to cross an open field, climb down into this canal, and then climb back up and over the dirt wall before it could really even fire at the Americans and the Americans would be able to shoot back at them the whole time. Even better, Jackson put some cannons on the other side of the river so he could fire into the side of the British army when they attacked. Now, the British actually had a pretty good plan for how to win this battle. I mean, these guys are veterans of the Napoleonic War. 
(laughs) they think they're not idiots either. Their plan was to sneak some soldiers across the river at night and capture the artillery over there. Those guys would then shoot up some flares to signal the cannons were theirs. Once the cannons were captured, they would begin firing into the American camp, causing panic and confusion as the main army back on the plane launched a frontal assault while it was still too dark for the Americans to take aim. The problem was everything went wrong. The British, who crossed the river to capture the artillery, they got swept downstream by the river's current and didn't succeed in capturing the cannons until the battle was over. The rest of the army had to stand their information all night long, waiting for those flares to signal their attack, only for the sun to rise first instead. When the Americans saw the British wind up across the field of battle, they started shooting at them. And that's when the British decided to heck with it. We defeated Napoleon. We can defeat these guys too. And they attacked. But there was another problem. Remember that canal the Americans were hiding behind with the the dirt wall? The British forgot the ladders that they'd planned to climb out of the canal with. So wave after wave of British soldiers went down into that canal only to get trapped there, trying to climb over the writhing bodies of their dead and dying comrades as the Americans fired down upon them. The British general and his second-in-command were both killed. More than 2,000 redcoats were killed or wounded compared to only 71 Americans. That's how Jackson became a national hero. He also earns a new nickname around this time, Old Hickory, because he was so tough and Hickory is tough. Get it? It's not a bad nickname. So Old Hickory, or Jackson, he would lead one more military campaign before retiring and becoming a presidential candidate. The Conquest of Florida. This should be another familiar one. In 1818, President James Monroe wanted Spanish Florida to become American Florida. But Spain didn't want to sell, and Congress didn't want to declare war. So Monroe sent Jackson down to the Florida border with a small army and orders to stop a tribe of Native Americans and escaped slaves from raiding into Georgia. Whenever engaged, this tribe, the Seminole, they would flee into the Florida swamps. So Jackson decided the only way to stop them was to conquer Florida. He asked President Monroe and Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, who's going to come up a lot more later, for permission to invade, and neither replied. So he just marched into Florida without permission and took it. And the Spanish troops, they didn't really try too hard to stop him. I mean, back then, Florida kind of sucked. One of the soldiers marching with Jackson wrote, quote, Florida is certainly the poorest country that ever two people quarreled for, nothing but barren wastes. And another said that it should be abandoned to the Seminole tribe, and he wrote, I could not wish them all a worse place. Really good postcard stuff, right? So yeah, the Spanish kind of (laughs) let Jackson take it, the troops at least. But while the American soldiers were grumbling about what a crappy place they'd just captured, The political class in Washington, D.C. was a good deal more ticked off over Jackson's illegal invasion of Florida. I mean, declaring war was Congress's prerogative. It's right there in the Constitution, clear as day. This was illegal. Which brings us back to Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, and also introduces Speaker of the House Henry Clay to the Jackson narrative. We're going to hear a lot more about Calhoun and Clay moving forward. Henry Clay and John Calhoun both opposed Jackson's invasion of Florida. But while Clay did so publicly, Calhoun did so privately. So Jackson quickly decided he hated Henry Clay. And that hatred is going to fuel one of the great political rivalries of American history. And because Jackson didn't know that Calhoun was privately critical of him, because publicly, Calhoun never really spoke out against the invasion once he saw how popular it was, well, that made Jackson really like Calhoun, fueling an important political alliance. But don't worry, it's going to all blow up in spectacular fashion before the episode's done. So that's Jackson's military career. He won the Creek War, won the Battle of New Orleans, and won Florida. 
and Americans love a winner. But before I totally close the book on Jackson's military career, I want to mention one more thing. Jackson, he had a tendency to err toward war crimes. He seemed to love burning Native American villages during the Creek Wars and his invasion of Florida. He had six American militiamen hung during the Creek War when they tried to leave the army before their terms of enlistment were up, which, while technically desertion, is a bit harsh, right? Jackson also illegally jailed a judge and a writer during a period of martial law in New Orleans after they said mean things about him, and he hung two British merchants he captured during his Florida invasion because they had committed the crime of peaceably trading with the Native Americans. Seriously. One of the British merchants, he'd even been trying to talk the Seminole out of waging war on the Americans. And the dude got hung for it. So yeah, Andrew Jackson, war hero and war criminal. Now we can move on to politics. In 1821, Jackson retired from the military to his estate in Tennessee, the Hermitage. And as the election of 1824 approached, Jackson had a lot of problems with everyone in D.C., and especially most of the guys running for president. He was basically Frank Costanza at the Chrismica table. But he had no thoughts of running. Not yet. He'd served in Congress and the Senate and kind of hated it and kind of sucked at it. I mean, politicians weren't supposed to kill people they didn't like. What's the fun in that? That's when a Tennessee political machine that Jackson had worked with earlier in life you know, back when he was a debt collector, congressman, senator, running for militia general, they thought it would help them to win offices in Tennessee if a popular war hero like Jackson were on the ticket as a presidential candidate in that state. So they nominated him, thinking nobody outside Tennessee is going to vote for this guy, but Tennesseans love him, and someone might turn out to vote for Ole Hickory and then vote for us by association. The thing is, people outside Tennessee did like Jackson. They liked him a lot. He was a winner, and Jackson soon found himself at the head of an unexpected national campaign for president. That's how Jackson entered the crazy election of 1824. This is that election we talked about in the John Quincy episode, where five major candidates ran, and Jackson's popularity was so great that he actually won the plurality of the vote. But because he didn't win the majority, the top three candidates, Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and a man named Crawford, went to a runoff in the House of Representatives. This is how elections are settled if you don't win a majority. That's where Speaker of the House Henry Clay, who had been one of the original five candidates, but who didn't perform well enough to qualify for the runoff. Well, remember how Clay thinks Jackson is a war criminal? And remember how Jackson hates Clay for saying Jackson's illegal invasion of Florida was illegal? Well, Clay was not going to let Jackson become president. He convinced enough states to vote for John Quincy Adams that John Quincy won the presidency and the House of Representatives. Jackson, for once, was defeated. But not for long. Like any good movie monster, Jackson was down, but he wasn't out. Over the next four years, a new political party began to grow around Andrew Jackson. The Democratic Party. The same Democratic Party that exists today, though you would not recognize it. The original Democratic Party was basically forged from the factions led by three personalities. Jackson, the charismatic war hero who represented the West. John C. Calhoun, the former Secretary of War turned Vice President who was a powerful voice for slavery and the South. And New York Senator Martin Van Buren, a political wizard who was the brain of the operation. Seriously, I mean, Jackson brought the personality, but Van Buren is the guy who made the Democrats a juggernaut. We'll get deeper into the creation of the Democratic Party in our next episode on Martin Van Buren's life and presidency, but I'm going to give you one gem right here. The first use of a donkey to represent the Democrats came in their first presidential election, 1828, right here. Andrew Jackson's enemies kept saying he was as ignorant and stubborn as a jackass, which amused Jackson 
so he started including the image of a donkey in his campaign posters. Now, this whole idea got forgotten after he left office, but it did make a resurgence in the 1870s, and the Democrats are still donkeys today. The more you know. So, with Jackson at the top of the ticket, Calhoun running as his vice president, and Van Buren working his magic, the Democratic Party easily routed John Quincy Adams in the 1828 presidential election, winning 178 to 83 in the Electoral College and 647,000 votes to 508,000 votes in the popular vote. But before Jackson could report to Washington, tragedy struck. Remember how Jackson and Rachel had started courting before Rachel was divorced from her first husband? Well, the election of 1828 was a really nasty election, and Jackson's opponents made sure to leak this about Rachel to the press. When Rachel saw the story in a newspaper shortly after election day, she was so shocked and humiliated that she collapsed. Her health rapidly declined, and she died a month later. And remember how Jackson was willing to shoot any man who spoke poorly of Rachel? Just imagine what he's going to do to his political rivals in D.C. after their partisan attacks killed his wife. And so, on March 4th, 1829, Andrew Jackson, the war hero and war criminal, who'd gone from Revolutionary War orphan to co-founder of the Democratic Party, was elected the seventh president of the United States of America. He reported to the Capitol in Washington, D.C., dressed in black and still in mourning, and got to work. So what did the United States and the world look like when Jackson became president? Let's look around. The United States was peaceful and prosperous when Andrew Jackson became president. The Erie Canal in New York had supercharged the economy of the Northeast, where industry was beginning to take root. The South was likewise prosperous, if you were white and a plantation owner, that is. Cotton and slavery had spread into the new southern states along the Gulf Coast and taken root everywhere it was allowed to spread. But that doesn't mean those wealthy southerners were happy. A recent tariff passed during John Quincy's administration it had them in a real hissy, and uh, let's just call that foreshadowing. Internationally, the world was relatively at peace. Greece was fighting a war for independence from the Ottoman Empire, though, and the great composer Beethoven had just died in 1827. There were no major threats to American security on the horizon. In short, it was a good time to become president. But that doesn't mean Jackson wouldn't preside over turbulent years. There are three major events that would define the Jackson presidency. First, the Trail of Tears. Second, the Bank War. And third, the Nullification Crisis. Let's start with the Trail of Tears. As we saw during the Creek War, Jackson had no shame in his treatment of Native Americans. Remember, at the end of that war, he told his Creek allies to give up their land or they would all be killed. Now that he's president, that's basically going to become national policy, especially after gold is found under Cherokee land in Georgia in 1829. Jackson's first priority as president was to pass the Indian Removal Act. Technically, the act authorized the president to offer the Native Americans unsettled lands west of the Mississippi in exchange for their lands east of the Mississippi, with moving expenses paid by the federal government. But practically, Jackson wasn't asking. The movers were the U.S. Army. And remember, you're asking people to leave established homes and farms for a patch of unsettled dirt out west. It's not a good deal. And it's worth mentioning, this was not an overwhelmingly popular policy even with white America. There were plenty of Americans, especially Quakers, who thought it was evil to continue stealing the natives' land. One New Jersey senator wrote, quote, we have crowded the tribes upon a few miserable acres of our southern frontier. It is all that is left to them of their once boundless forests. And still, like the horse leech, 
Our unsatisfied cupidity cries, give, give, give. I mean, that's just political poetry there. But the Americans who lived closest to the frontier and who would benefit most from seizing Native American land, they were just numerous enough and influential enough to get the bill through Congress 102 to 97, a squeaker. By 1832, the first tribes were being marched west. But some weren't willing to go without a fight. A legal fight. Two tribes, the Cherokee and the Creek, sued the state of Georgia, which was trying to force them to take Jackson's offer by moving in on their land. The tribes claimed they were sovereign nations who had signed treaties with the U.S. government that guaranteed them their land. Their case made it to the Supreme Court, where they won a landmark ruling that basically said Native American tribal lands aren't bound by state law, only federal law. Which, great, that means Georgia can't make you leave. But Georgia was still making them leave. And when the tribes asked Jackson to enforce the Supreme Court ruling and protect their land from encroaching Georgians, Jackson refused. And then he turned to George and he said, hey, use more force. To be clear, this was a constitutional crisis. The president of the United States is ordering Americans to ignore a Supreme Court ruling, and he gets away with it because the president has the army and the Supreme Court doesn't. So if you've ever wondered how fragile is our democracy, well, pretty fragile. Now, the opposition was outraged, but... Jackson's Western and Southern supporters, they loved this. Over the next eight years, members of five major tribes, the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole, they were all moved West in a government-sanctioned act of ethnic cleansing. Some had to travel as far as 5,000 miles, often by foot and sometimes in brutal winter conditions. Perhaps nobody got it worse than the Cherokee. 16,000 refused to leave their Georgia homes. So the U.S. government, and this next bit happened after Jackson's presidency, but would not have happened without his Indian Removal Act. It happens right after he's out of office. The U.S. government ordered 7,000 soldiers to force the remaining Cherokee into internment camps at Bayonet Point. They were not allowed to gather their belongings, which were simply seized by whites moving into their land. The Cherokee were forced to march west during a brutal winter, where frozen rivers frequently forced them to wait in place, sleeping in frozen mud. 4,000 of these 16,000 Cherokee, 25%, died during the march. Overall, I've seen estimates that anywhere from 40,000 to 100,000 Native Americans were moved west during this eight-year period, and anywhere from four to 15,000 died along the way. It's one of the more shameful episodes in American history. And yet, like I mentioned, Jackson's Southern and Western supporters loved it. And that popularity, it might be why Jackson surprised the nation by announcing he would run for a second term in 1832, which is going to lead to our next crisis, the Bank War. Okay, so it's been a while since we talked about a national political fight over a national bank. But this is the big one. Okay, so a quick refresh. Way back under George Washington, the first National Bank of the United States was established on a 20-year charter by Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton in a political deal with Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson's party, the Jeffersonian Republicans, they hated the bank. And 20 years later, Jefferson's disciple, President James Madison, allowed the first bank of the United States to die peacefully when that 20-year charter narrowly wasn't renewed by Congress. But then the United States almost lost the War of 1812, and quite a few Jeffersonian Republicans, including good old Henry Clay, they concluded that not having a national bank to help fund the war was one of the reasons they'd almost lost it. So a new national bank was established on another 20-year charter in 1816. And if you're doing the math, that means the charter will need to be renewed in 1836, during Jackson's second term if he wins re-election. Now, Jackson didn't like the bank, 
and he didn't like the bank for the same reason most Americans didn't like the bank. He, he didn't quite get it. What's happening in there? Why are bankers always the wealthiest guys in town when their hands are never dirty from work? I mean, they must have gotten that money by skimming it from the top, right? Well, n- no. But the more legitimate complaint that Jackson and others had was the double-edged sword nature of banks that we still live with today. It's time for a quick economics lesson. Banks make loans to people and businesses. These loans help people and businesses grow more quickly. They might help a family buy a house or help a business build a factory. These loans are always a gamble. You hope the family flourishes and the factory succeeds so the loan can be paid back. But if you make enough bad loans, either through greed, stupidity, or bad luck, you can create a bubble of economic growth that pops and causes a recession when those families and businesses can't pay. Because when they can't pay, the banks can't pay the people they owe money to. And then those people can't pay the people they owe money to, and so on and so forth. I'm recording this in 2020. Listeners may remember the Great Recession, which was actually a depression, of 2008. That was, at its core, caused by tons and tons and tons of bad, high-risk housing loans that, when people couldn't pay them back, created a ripple effect of toxic debt that crashed the global economy. So in short, when you have good loans, it helps the economy grow more quickly. But when you have too many bad loans, you create the risk of a bubble that can pop and harm the economy. And I mentioned this in passing during the Monroe episode, but America's first bubble pop recession happened on his watch in 1819, and it kind of freaked people out, including Jackson, who lost quite a bit of money. So as the National Bank's charter comes up for a vote in 1830s, many Americans thought that if they killed the bank, it would prevent severe economic recessions from ever happening again. So Jackson had come out against the bank in the past for these reasons, but he hadn't really made a big deal about it for a while. So as the election of 1832 approached, the bank's two biggest supporters, Henry Clay, who had helped establish the bank back in 1816, and Nicholas Biddle, the bank's current president, they had to decide what to do. Ultimately, Clay convinced Biddle that if Jackson won the election of 1832, Jackson would refuse to recharter, and Biddle's bank would be killed. But if Clay won the election, and Clay was the other major candidate in the election of 1832, this was a Clay versus Jackson fight. If Clay won, Biddle could rest easy knowing the bank would be rechartered, because after all, Clay was the guy who helped establish it in the first place. And so Biddle did what only Biddle could do. He formally requested the bank be recharted early, right in the middle of the election. And Andrew Jackson vetoed it, which made Henry Clay's day, because what Clay really wanted was to be president. And now, the election of 1832 might be a referendum on the bank, and that was a fight Clay thought he could win. But, well, he was wrong. The bank may have been important to a lot of people, but the Democrats were still a far better organized party than Clay's Whig party, who we'll talk about in future episodes. So Jackson cruised to re-election, 219 to 49 in the Electoral College. And because Jackson is a man who doesn't believe in half measures, he decided he didn't want to wait for 1836 to see the bank die. He knew Biddle had asked for the rechartering early to help Clay win. Jackson wanted the bank to die now. So what Jackson did is he started removing all federal deposits from the National Bank and moving them to state banks. Because if a bank didn't have any money in the vault, well, it couldn't really be a bank. Now, was it constitutional for Jackson to do this? No, probably not. In fact, his treasure secretary resigned rather than carry out the order. But Jackson promoted someone else who would follow orders, and deposits started to move. But Nicholas Biddle wasn't going to take this sitting down either. This was his bank. He's the bank president. So he decided if the bank was going to die, 
It was going to die kicking and screaming, and it was going to take the rest of the country down with it. Because an economic meltdown, maybe, would create enough pressure on Jackson to reverse course and save the bank. (laughs) Which shows how clearly Biddle did not understand Jackson. So as Jackson is removing deposits, Biddle recalls all of the bank's loans, which totally freaks the economy out. I mean, just imagine if suddenly, out of the blue, credit were cut off and every major bank loan in the country were called in at once, including credit card debt, housing, and oh, all paper money is about to become valueless. Because back then, paper money only had value because it was backed by gold in the vault and Jackson's taking the gold out. That's going to have an impact. You'd have bankruptcies, cash shortages, a severe contraction, which is what happened to Jackson. But he refused to budge, declaring to Martin Van Buren at one point, The bank Mr. Van Buren is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. And so he did. And the bank died. And it sucked for a lot of people for several years. But the economy did eventually recover. It always does. As those deposits moved from the national bank to the state banks, the state banks were able to start issuing loans and doing things that banks do to help the economy grow. But, well, remember what I said about good loans and bad loans? The state banks weren't quite as good at offering good loans as the national bank was. And they were also quite a bit more corrupt. When Martin Van Buren becomes president after Andrew Jackson... This is all going to blow up spectacularly in his face. So look forward to that. So that's the bank war. The second bank of the United States is dead. There won't be another. The economy took a hit, but we're all going to be all right. For another year or two at least. But the bank war was not the only crazy thing that happened at the start of Jackson's second term. We also almost had a civil war. It's time for the nullification crisis. Okay, so this one is going to be crazy, and its origins also date back a bit. Remember during the John Quincy episode, how the Democrats passed a protectionist tariff that protected goods produced by northern industry, but didn't protect anything made in the South? And then the South got really pissed because it meant a lot of stuff they were used to buying cheaply now cost an arm and a leg, and basically had to be purchased from the North because tariffs made importing it too expensive? They called it the Tariff of Abominations. Well, that's about to come to a head in a big way. And the man who's going to push things right up to the verge of civil war is Vice President John C. Calhoun. Oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. Okay, so remember how Calhoun convinced Jackson that he had supported Jackson's invasion of Florida when he would actually opposed it? Well, when Jackson became president, he was presented with evidence of Calhoun's duplicity. And he kind of lost it. The Calhoun-Jackson alliance that had been one of the founding pillars of the Democratic Party was dead. This is why Martin Van Buren is going to follow Jackson and not Calhoun. This might also be why Calhoun reached even further back in the Wayback Machine and found the Kentucky Resolution of 1798. What was the Kentucky Resolution of 1798? Well, I don't blame you if you don't remember this but this dates back to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. 1798 is when Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically made criticizing the government a crime. Jefferson had opposed this by ghostwriting the Kentucky Resolution, a resolution passed by the Kentucky State Legislature that declared states had the power to nullify federal laws they disagreed with and block their enforcement within state borders. Nothing much came of it at the time. But when Calhoun discovered it, and when he discovered Jefferson had secretly written it, he realized he had found a friggin' howitzer of a weapon he could fire at the Tariff of Abominations, and fire away he did. Calhoun publicly came out in support of nullification, the idea that any state could nullify any federal law it disagreed with and block its enforcement within that state's borders. Which, yeah, that's going to be a problem. He also resigned from the vice presidency and was immediately elected one of South Carolina's senators. In November 1832, just after Jackson was reelected, South Carolina 
held a convention that voted to nullify the hated tariff and threatened to secede if Jackson forced the issue. Oh, and if it did secede, John C. Calhoun was going to be the first president of the Confederacy. Jackson was furious. And when I say furious, I mean call up the army furious. Jackson mobilized the military to be ready to invade South Carolina at a moment's notice. And possibly the greatest presidential example of, well, that escalated quickly. When a South Carolina congressman asked Jackson if he had a message for his constituents back in South Carolina, Jackson replied, Yes, I have. Please give my compliments to my friends in your state and say to them that if a single drop of blood shall be shed there in opposition to the laws of the United States, I will hang the first man I can lay my hand on engaged in such treasonable conduct from the first tree I can reach. So, yeah. (laughs) So where does this go? I mean, next thing you know, South Carolina passed a bill to raise an army to defend itself. And Jackson, he asked Congress for a force bill to authorize him to invade. How do we not end up at war? Well, Henry Clay, of all people, will save the day. Henry Clay was a pro-tariff politician, but he was even more a pro-union politician. So he reached out to Calhoun and he met with him to get a sense for Calhoun's resolve. And then Clay took the floor of the Senate to reveal his grand compromise. Without really acknowledging the nullification threat, Clay proposed the tariff gradually be lowered to tolerable rates, basically to where it had been before, over the following 10 years. And then Senator Calhoun stood, and everyone held their breath. And to the Senate's immense relief and my surprise, Calhoun announced his support for Clay's compromise tariff. The new tariff bill was voted into effect the same day as Jackson's force bill, and the force bill never had to be used. South Carolina, perhaps realizing it would totally be destroyed if it attempted to secede alone, and seeing that it could get what it wanted in the tariff-reducing compromise, it rescinded its nullification ordinance and stood down. For now. Civil war had been averted. But here's the thing about the nullification crisis. The thing about nullification that nobody said out loud is that if nullification became a thing, yes, they would nullify the tariff today. But if the federal government ever tried to outlaw slavery, they would sure as shit nullify that tomorrow. Jackson himself sensed this, later saying, quote, that tariff was only the pretext and disunion and a southern confederacy the real object. The next pretext will be the Negro or slavery question. And meanwhile, Calhoun, probably from his evil lair, wrote to his supporters that this was a strategic retreat, but not a defeat. Please enjoy my terrible Deep South accent as I read his words. We are growing daily. Our cause would be better understood, our strength increased, and the temper of the South and other sections better ascertained. To take issue now would be to play into the hands of the administration while to delay the issue would derange all their calculations. I feel confident we want only time to ensure victory. I'm going to let that be the end of our take on the Jackson presidency. We had the Trail of Tears, the Bank War, and oh boy, that sure looked like a dry run for the Civil War, didn't it? If you want to remember three things about the Jackson presidency, that's it. Trail of Tears, Bank War, Nullification Crisis. In 1837, Jackson retired from the presidency. He was 70 years old and in constant pain from wounds acquired in duels or in war. This is a guy who'd spent decades walking around with a couple bullets in him. As he left office, Jackson was happy to see his second vice president, Martin Van Buren, become president. His legacy would be secured. So how had the country and the world changed during the eight years of Jackson's presidency. One new state was added, Arkansas, in 1836. On the invention front, an American named Joseph Henry invented the first electric doorbell in 1832. Now, it wouldn't catch on for 80 years, but electric doorbells exist now. 
and a guy named Samuel Morse invented Morse code, a way to communicate through long and short beeps or dashes. Morse code would soon be paired with telegraph wires to revolutionize communication. Internationally, the British Empire banned slavery in 1833, which is going to help fuel the abolitionist movement in the United States. In 1834, a German customs union formed. There is no Germany yet, just a hodgepodge of little German fiefdoms. But this was a neat step toward that unified Germany. Mexico outlawed slavery in 1829, and oh yeah, American immigrants who were pissed off that Mexico outlawed slavery revolted and won Texas independence in 1836. That is going to be important. After the presidency, Old Hickory retired to the Hermitage, where he kept in touch with friends and with politics. We'll see more of Jackson in future episodes, especially when an old friend of his named Sam Houston calls and says, Hey, buddy. Want a piece of Texas? All right, all right, all right. We'll get into that in our episode on the life and presidency of James K. Polk, a man whose nickname was Young Hickory. On June 8, 1845, Andrew Jackson died of congestive heart failure at his home in the Hermitage at age 78. Before the end of his life, he said he had but two regrets, that he, quote, had been unable to shoot Henry Clay or hang John C. Calhoun. Which, well, that's so Jackson. So what can we learn from Andrew Jackson? Hopefully, you aren't saying this is a guy whose values you want to emulate. I mean, he killed people, he's racist, he owned a bunch of slaves. Do not emulate the values of Andrew Jackson. But we can learn something from how he was able to be successful. And it's basically this. Fortune favors the bold. Act swiftly, act decisively, act confidently, and you'll be amazed how far that carries you against rivals with greater resources who act more cautiously. And you'll have setbacks, but act tenaciously, and they can be overcome. But don't act stupidly. The trick is identifying your North Star, your core values that you can refer to and know in an instant, faced with a major choice, do I do X or Y? And like I said, don't use Jackson's core values. Develop your own and trust in those values to act decisively when a decision must be made. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Jackson's campaign song was recorded by Oscar Brands and Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was The Life of Andrew Jackson by Robert Remini. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of Martin Van Buren the little magician who might be more responsible than anyone for the two-party system we live under today. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>